Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. And welcome to Naked Oceans. I'm Sarah Castor-Perry. And I'm Helen Scales. And this month we are venturing into the deep sea to find out how scientists are using cutting-edge technologies to explore the darkest and most mysterious parts of the oceans. I'm just back from Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego, where I discovered how microscopic critters cope with life in the deep sea, and I got to play with some high-tech gadgets for bringing stuff back from the depths. Don't break them. (laughs) Don't worry, I didn't actually break anything. We'll also find out how researchers around the world are joining forces using the latest online social media tools to explore uncharted waters a long way down beneath the waves. And in Critter of the Month, we'll catch up with another marine expert and ask them, if you were a marine critter, which would you be and why? The ones that initially settle are all females. So it's females who dissolve and eat the bone. Any new babies coming in are taken by the females and made into little dwarf males. So the females actually accumulate harems of dwarf males. Stay tuned to find out who that was and which critter they picked. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans. On the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Well, I'm going to kick things off this month with news from a group of top marine conservation groups who call themselves the Marine Reserves Coalition, who are sending a strong message to the British government that they need to be doing a lot more to protect the oceans. Here's Alastair Gammel, director of the UK office of the Pew Environment Group, one of the members of the Marine Reserves Coalition. The UK controls not only the seas around uh, the United Kingdom, but we have these overseas territories, so that actually the UK is one of the major marine nations of the world, and I think it's something like 6,000 square kilometres of ocean that we control. So we can do something really important in the world. And what are we aiming at? What do you think we need to achieve with protecting the seas within marine reserves? We're aiming at 30% would be no take, which sounds a lot, but that still leaves 70%, by far the majority, uh, for fisheries and exploitation and various things, but 30%. But that is so massive compared with what we have around the United Kingdom. We have less than 1%. It's such a tiny little area. There are only three small reserves in the seas around the United Kingdom, but we could do so much more and we need to do so much more. Any thoughts on how we, you know, how do we go about doing that? Well, we have to get the public on our side. So we, we all know on land about things like the Serengeti, uh, Yellowstone Park, and we all think, wow, those are fantastic and we should protect them. We need to have the same mentality in the sea and say, actually, let's set aside some, some places as a major public asset and we need to 
convince politicians to do that. Well, personally, I think it's really encouraging that people are standing up and loudly pointing out how important it is that we protect lots of the ocean and that it can be a win-win situation both for fisheries and for protecting marine wildlife. But I guess you could argue that campaigning for one-third protection is, is a bit scary. It could put a lot of people off thinking, oh, you know, you're trying to take over the oceans and put everything aside for conservation. Although Alistair did point out that, you know, you have got 70% that you can that isn't protected. But I guess it just has to be that balance between setting something that's likely to be a realistic target um, or perhaps being a little bit ambitious because, you know, maybe inevitably it's going to have to come down from that 30% target because maybe, you know, that's just a little bit too much to ask. I don't know. What do you think? Let us know. Um, But this Marine Manifesto for Protecting a Third of British Seas was launched as part of a big campaign being run by the department store Selfridges in London. It's called Project Ocean, um, and it's basically raising awareness about problems in the sea and raising money to set up protected areas. And I think it's really great because... It's really getting important messages through to people who might not otherwise really get involved in issues like these. And, you know, to be honest, the sort of people who go to Selfridges, um, it's a fairly posh, expensive department store. Um, you know, they're the sort of people who've got money to make choices and do things like buy sustainably caught fish. So I think, you know, I think it's a really good thing that that's, that that's happening. Well, one place that could help to make a major step towards protecting one third of British waters is the overseas territory of Bermuda. Um, And this is an island in the Western Atlantic, and it lies alongside the Sargasso Sea, which is a unique ecosystem. It's an amazing place, basically made up of enormous floating mats of sargass and seaweed. And they offer food and shelter for all sorts of other important marine life. I caught up with Frederick Ming, director of the Bermuda government's Department of Environmental Protection, to find out about some exciting plans that are underway for conserving a large part of the Sargasso Sea. There are actually two things happening simultaneously, and that's, that's what makes this extremely exciting. Um, we've got one project that would begin at the outer margin of our 200-mile uh, exclusive economic zone and work inward from there to create a no-take uh, marine reserve. So, so one project is looking inward from the outside. The other, the Sargasso Sea Alliance, is looking from that 200-mile zone outward. Now, the, the reason why these two are interestingly connected is that we believe that if Bermuda would set the example of setting aside a significant portion of its EEZ as a marine reserve, it would give us the moral authority to be able to invite other countries to, to take some kind of action serious marine conservation action. I think it's really encouraging that countries like Bermuda are are taking marine protection very seriously. Um, And let's hope that they can indeed set a really good example for everybody else. Well, from some marine conservation news, I think it's time we got stuck into some science. Sarah, what have you got for us from the marine science world this week? Well, I'm actually going to be looking way back in time because I've got an exciting fossil story that shows that some very strange extinct marine invertebrates called anomalocaridids were actually around for a lot longer than we previously thought. Now, anomalocaridid, it's a very long name. What are they? Uh, they look a bit like a cross between a cuttlefish and a woodlouse. They have a long segmented trunk with these flat swimming lobes running down their sides two segmented appendages on the front that look a little bit like prawn tails and a circular mouth on the underside of the head that looks like a pineapple ring. In fact, each of these separate elements, the body, the appendages and the mouth, were once thought to be from three completely separate animals. 
It was only in the 1980s when the late, great Harry Whittington and Derek Briggs, who's actually one of the authors on this paper, found complete specimens with all three of these features present in the Burgess Shale in Canada. And they realised that they were actually part of one organism, which they christened Anomalocaris, which means strange shrimp. They were very agile, formidable predators of the oceans back then, moving by undulating their lobes a bit like a ray or a cuttlefish and crushing prey in their hard, circular mouthpiece. Now, there are four other genera of anomalocaridids as well as anomalocaris, and they're found in early and middle Cambrian sites, so from around 542 to 501 million years ago, from the United States, Australia, Russia, Poland and China. This paper, published in Nature by Peter Van Roy and Derek Briggs, describes new specimens of anomalocaridids from the Fezwata biota in southeastern Morocco, which is from the early Ordovician period, which is around 488 to 472 million years ago, so quite a bit younger than those previous specimens. They represent the youngest examples of anomalocaridids by about 30 million years, and they provide a link to the great appendage arthropod Shindahanes from the early Devonian, which is an even more recent geological period. The specimens they found were actually quite large as anomalocaridids go as well. Some were up to a metre long, and they were found within a rich mix of other fossilised species, showing that they were still a really important part of the marine ecosystem at this time in the Ordovician. Another key finding, actually, is that the dorsal blades, these flat structures found all the way down the back of the specimens, these were once thought to be scales, but here the authors suggest that they may have performed some sort of respiratory function, a bit like a gill, possibly because of the high oxygen requirement of an active swimming lifestyle that we assume these anomalocaridids had. So these new Moroccan specimens are the youngest examples, in geological terms, of anomalocaridids yet found, And the authors suggest that they may have died out, you know, we don't see them later in the geological record, that they may have died out after the diversification of some other groups like predatory eurypterids, which are these huge, terrifying sea scorpions, and also cephalopods during the Ordovician. So exciting new discoveries about these completely weird animals. We will have some pictures of these linked to the article on our website, so do go take a look because they are very, very strange looking. They're awesome creatures, and I do love the story about that they thought there were lots of different animals and just actually it was all one crazy creature that they these bits belonged to. Well, you can find out more about this month's aquatic news stories and many more at our website, that's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and me, Sarah Castor-Perry, and this month we're delving down deep into the deep sea. And to start us off, I went to Scripps Institution of Oceanography to speak to Professor of Marine Microbial Genetics, Professor Douglas Bartlett, and engineer extraordinaire Kevin Hardy about the challenges of the deep sea, both if you're a microbe and if you're a research vehicle trying to take samples of those microbes. Here's Professor Bartlett. There's so much diversity of, of microbial life in the ocean in general and especially in the deep sea, and we just don't know a lot of what's there. So there's all this biology that's just waiting to be explored. And so we're, we've been taken up with that. I have been uh, told of this quote that came out of the Census for Marine Microbial Life that there's the equivalent of, I think it's something like 35 full-grown African elephants worth of microbes for every man, woman, and child on, on the planet. And most of those 
microbes in the ocean are in the, in the deep ocean, maybe not in the extreme deep ocean environments, but, but found at depth. And so there's a lot of diversity of life down there. We're interested in the adaptations of microbial life to deep ocean settings because they're so different. They're dark. Uh, the way microbes get nutrients in the deep ocean is very different from that in surface waters. They're adapted to low temperatures as a rule, and they're adapted to high hydrostatic pressure. And it's this last parameter, high pressure, that we've really been focusing on. And it would be wonderful to be able to get those organisms into culture to more easily do biochemistry and genetics. It'd also be useful to, to look at their genomes and do culture-independent molecular analyses and to look at processes like CO2 fixation and other biogeochemical cycles. So if you look at something like a bacterium or a microorganism, something that's very small, do they face different challenges from the high pressure than something like a larger-bodied animal? The general problems that a microbe would face would be very similar to the cells of, of any organism, an invertebrate or a vertebrate. It all has to do with high-pressure influences on volume changes of equilibria and of activation. So biochemical processes are very different under high pressure. And all organisms are going to face that issue. And so how do they get around these issues? What, what adaptations have they come up with that help them solve it? The most well-studied adaptation has to do with membrane lipids. The membrane lipids of deep ocean organisms, fish to bacteria, are loaded with highly unsaturated fatty acids. And that's critical to keeping the membrane in the right physical state, a semi-liquid state, so that it can function for transport and for energetics and for other processes. So how exactly do you go and retrieve samples of these things? Is that what you do? You go and then you bring them back and study them in the lab? Do you have a, I guess you can't really necessarily study them in situ because you just kind of look at them and you think, I don't really know what's going on there. Yeah, it's hard to, to, to explore microbial activities and, and processes in situ, but that's a, a growing area of development in the ocean sciences that is coming up with more autonomous instruments that allow you to go where you need to go and to measure those, those parameters that you'd like to measure. But what we usually do is we work with an engineer here at, at Scripps who comes up with these wonderful untethered toys that can be deployed from relatively small ocean craft and sink all the way down to the deepest ocean depth and can be used to collect water samples and mud and um, to, to collect animals using beta traps and things like that. And after a prescribed time, we'll release their ballast, close the doors of whatever it is that they're sampling, seawater or animals like crustaceans, and come back up to the surface. And we get those samples at the surface, and then we process them. So far, it's been, it's been valuable. We've been getting new kinds of microbes, in some cases not just new species or, or, or genera of microbes, but even new subphyla and phyla of microbes coming up that hadn't been cultured previously from deep ocean environments. And finally, I spotted earlier that little tiny polystyrene cup on your windowsill. Is that something that was taken down in one of these little unmanned subs? What a great question. Um, you know, I don't even remember where this came from. Uh, it either came from one of those small untethered instruments, or it looks like in, the, in this case it came from a, a dive with the Alvin submersible. I see. And so that probably went down just a couple kilometers in depth. But some of these 
instruments that we deploy have been used at depths uh, as great as nine kilometers or so. So, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm guessing it was once a sort of normal-sized polystyrene cup, and it's now sort of the size of a very small egg cup. It's an illustration of the pressures that we're looking at, I suppose. It, it is, it is. Uh, this is a perfect example of how high pressure promotes volume decreases, and it does that to a styrofoam cup. At high pressure, the, the styrofoam cups get compressed to something like ceramic and greatly decreased in size. So I suppose that is a great illustration of the problems that microbes like that face in the deep sea. It is, and also for people who want to deploy instruments in the deep ocean, because everything has to be designed so that it can cope with high pressure. So pressure housings are necessary for, for every component of equipment that gets deployed down deep. And whether it's a, a manned submersible or an autonomous instrument or some cabled array, it all has to be pressure resistant. Well, speaking of taking stuff down to the deep ocean and how exactly we go about looking at all the, the microbes and all the life down there, we're now joined by Kevin Hardy. Kevin, hello. Hi. So I, th I hear that you have quite a lot of exciting gadgets and instruments that you might be able to show us. We have some of the tools of science that get us down to the deepest ocean depths, so just across the hall. Let's go, let's go. Wow, this is quite an exciting room full of gadgets and big yellow spheres. What, what exactly am I looking at here? Uh, this here is actually uh, one of our deep ocean vehicles. It's a small 17-inch outside diameter glass sphere with an acoustic transponder up on top so we can acoustically communicate with it at depth and uh, gives us about 54 pounds of buoyancy as well as command control. So that gives us a, a, a payload capability, which means we can haul stuff down to the deep ocean. And, and then haul stuff back up, I and guess. And then haul stuff back up, yeah, it should be a round trip. So we have uh, one of our frames right here. We actually try to use uh, fiberglass uh, reinforced plastic, FRP, because the water weight is so much lighter. And then we attach uh, plastic bottles onto here. So even though it looks large, Underwater really weighs nothing, so we can carry uh, large volumes of water back to the surface. Well, it's quite noisy in here, so should we should we take a couple of your exciting gadgets back to the office and we can we can have a look at them sure. in in more depth, as it were. Oh, fantastic pun there! So we have a, a few things we do. Uh, each of the vehicles is a is a composite of a variety of technologies. And we're experimenting with some new ideas. These are uh, lithium-ion batteries, which um, are actually really cool because they're, they're vacuum-packed. And you can see that there's really, um, it's sort of like those Ziploc bags that hold a jelly sandwich. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty small. I mean, it's kind of, what, three or four inches long, about an inch wide. So, I mean, how much power does that sort of thing give out? Yes, this will give us uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, it's almost 12 volts at about 2 amp hours. So you can really pack a lot of punch. But the other great thing about this, you can package these in an oil environment so they're pressure compensated. And we've done that and run them down to pressures greater than the deepest ocean depths. So the advantage to us is we can put these outside and we never have to open up those glass spheres that you saw on board of a small ship. So it makes turnaround very easy. So we've, uh, we're excited about that because rather than bringing water up to be processed on the ship, we can bring our little factory with us down to the seafloor and leave it down there for a long period of time and actually get a lot more uh, of the microbes that we're looking for. So obviously pressure is something that these are calibrated for. Is pressure the major problem that we look at when we're going down to study the deep sea? Yeah, it's really the first order problem because that'll affect your, your buoyancy. So it's really a buoyancy game. It's like having a lift to the deep sea. 
so we can uh, put a big anchor on these things, send them down, and uh, we have to design them to either tolerate pressure or to be stronger than the pressure. Once you're down there, it's actually pretty benign. It's, temperatures are fairly constant. Uh, there's no light to deal with. Currents are pretty nominal. Corrosion is one of the problems we have to deal with, sort of a secondary problem. But, uh, you know, those things are easily engineered around. So we've got some experience doing this. So uh, some of the problems remain the same. The, uh, the core extraction problem is the one where we go down to get sediments from the seafloor. It's well known that it's like uh, trying to take a, um, a core sample out of peanut butter. You know, it really plunge in a core tube and you pull it out, and it really has a lot of adhesion. So one of the techniques that was first proposed in 1960 was a, uh, by a guy named David Moore here in San Diego. And that was actually a, uh, a technique where you take a steel core tube and it's lined with a plastic sleeve. Oh, I see. So this is kind of, it's almost like a drain pipe kind of size metal tube we've got here. And it's surrounded by this sort of rather sturdy looking load of plastic rings and things. So how exactly <laughs> does this work? Well, this is really great because what he decided to do was rather than uh, fight the seafloor, he was going to give it up. And what he did was he, he took this, this steel tube and it would go down to the seafloor, hit the bottom, and then the uh, mud would push up on this release and it would leave the steel tube behind. Oh. And it would actually draw out the plastic liner. And so you leave a steel casement in the bottom, which is actually rusts away in a short period of time, and it's uh, fairly cheap. That works out actually pretty well, especially for free vehicles where you only have a limited amount of buoyancy. So I guess it's one of the problems is it's not just being able to get the sample into your machine. It's being able to get the machine off the seafloor again, because I guess it's kind of like getting stuck in that goopy mud at the beach where you get your feet stuck and you can't get out and you're sort of making that sort of splatchy yeah. noise. But you're obviously under so much pressure under the sea as well. So I guess it's kind of a bit of a problem. It is. Uh, some of the core samples that are done have a line that goes all the way back up to the ship with a big powerful winch. They can haul this thing with hundreds of pounds. But with the free vehicles, which are really just uh, remote vehicles that go down on their own, all you have on board is the uh, the buoyancy you have, which might only be you know on the order of 40 or 50 pounds. And so we had to become a little more clever about how to get our, our vehicle back. <laughs> and is this still a system that's used today? Do you still use it today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just use it on the Philippine Sea. It's been used down in Fiji. It's really uh, the best way to go, I think. It's still uh, something of the holy grail for us to really get this working perfectly every time. But once we do that, we have microbial scientists working here on on new medicines from the sea, both antibiotics and actually cancer cure drugs, and they really need to harvest the sediments to find those animals. And so um, they're very good at that. I'm very good at this. Together we can do things that really help mankind. And we're talking about all these untethered, unmanned vehicles, but have either of you ever been down inside something like the Alvin submersible, where I guess you're you're packed into this tiny little room? Have either of you ever been down in one of those? I have. I've been down on a few dives in the Alvin, and it's a wonderful experience looking out that porthole. In my case, we were looking at cold seeps off the northwest coast of, of the United States. Beautiful trip. Um, it's cramped in there, as you indicated, that you know, three people crammed in in an uncomfortable position, everybody trying to look out a porthole window. And there are real advantages to being right there when it comes to sampling and thinking about the science that you're going to do. I've been down in uh, a couple of smaller submarines, not the Alvin, and it's quite an experience, the first-hand observation. Roger Revell, our former uh, director, uh, once said that instruments will only see what you tell them to look for. So if you're measuring temperature, that's what you get. So so uh, having the human eye behind uh, the porthole is really, really pretty nice. Uh, the great thing about uh, free vehicles, 
unmanned vehicles is uh, their persistence. They can stay down there quite a long time, two years perhaps. You know, if you want to let them study, you know, the entire annual cycle of the deep ocean, you can do that. Uh, whereas uh, manned vehicles, their great advantage is the human eye and their mobility. Uh, we're picking up some more uh, mobility with AUVs, which are good for like a first-order solution to survey a large area. Um, but I think still that there's quite a bit of opportunity for man observation down deep. It's really an exciting place to be. It's a whole other planet. It's a whole other Earth. Things happen there that don't happen. Topside, spreading centers, subduction zones, all sorts of weird and strange animals, many of which we've yet to find. Every time we go down with a camera, we find something brand new. With samplers, we find something brand new. It's still a remarkable place to go. That was Kevin Hardy and before him, Professor Douglas Bartlett from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And if you'd like to hear more from them, there's a longer version of that interview at thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. I'm not entirely sure how keen I would actually be to go down into the deep sea in one of those Alvin vessels. I'm a little bit claustrophobic, so exciting, but mm, I think I'd be a bit scared to be squashed down there. Um, I'm afraid I'm with you on that one, actually. Um, I am a bit claustrophobic, but I would love to see it. I really would. bit torn on that. But uh, so far, no one's actually offered, so we'll have to see if I do get an invitation to, to see the deep sea someday. Well, as well as all this technology for venturing into the depths and bringing samples back, scientists are also finding novel ways of joining forces to explore the deep sea from the comfort of their laboratories. I caught up with Tim Shank from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution to find out about a pioneering expedition he led into the deep sea around Indonesia. It's an area famous for diversity of marine life in shallow waters, but we know very little about what lives further down beneath the waves. In this case, we were doing something really novel. Um, we had an, a remotely operated vehicle, so we had a robot that had a very good high-definition camera system. We were doing pure exploration of the seafloor. Um, no one ever been to this area of Indonesia, north of Indonesia, um, in the Sulawesi Sea. The vehicle wasn't novel in itself, but the signal that was coming off the seafloor was, was transported around the world. There were scientists in Indonesia and in various parts of the United States, um, in Europe, uh, in, the, in the United Kingdom, that were all tuning in at the same time. Uh, we were, had Skype and iChat going, um, and as we saw live pictures come in, we could hear the pilots of the ROV on board the ship. Uh, we could hear everybody on the ship we wanted to, and we could communicate with, every, with everyone who was listening in. We, we had uh, also conference calls going on at the same time, so we had voice, we had iChat, we had Skype. So um, that, to me, was a, real, was a real first. And so we were able to see things in real time and say what we thought we were seeing. All right, and so what we did was we documented what's on the deep sea floor north of Indonesia, and we had some remarkable results. Uh, in short, we found very high diversity. We found diversity that, that rivals that of the, the shallow water um, coral triangle area. The region we looked at was between 300 meters deep and um, 5,000 meters deep. So we covered a lot of different kinds of habitats, uh, mid-ocean rift habitats, a lot of deep sediment habitats. We actually found uh, wood and coconuts that were being used as habitat from certain species. Um, there's lots of wood, apparently, that falls into the water uh, in that region of the world, and, and it, it actually hosts a different kind of chemosynthetic community, those communities that, that live on decaying material. We think we found um, more than 40 new coral species and uh, even more uh, other invertebrate species. So it was a really uh, dramatic find. You mentioned the um, the fact that there's a lot of wood down there, which is fascinating. Um, but there are other chemosynthetic um, organisms down there that are that are living off of these 
these interesting chemicals that are that are down there on these seamounts. Um, what's going on with those? Yeah, well, we've we the the seamount where we found this hydrothermal vents is called Kawio Barat, and we found clams in the in the outlying sediment that uh, have uh, bacteria in their gills that allow them to take in. Uh, the nutrients and give it to the clam as, as the host. So it's, very, it's a symbiotic relationship that allows them to live there. And so we saw lots of clams um, as we proceeded away from the actual vents themselves. But at the vents where the water's coming out, we, we saw a lot of shrimp and a lot of barnacles. Uh, these are stalked barnacles that, that may be, you know, 8 to 10 inches long. That um, They're so numerous. It's like um, sometimes we liken it to going through a car wash. They're on every side of the of the these large chimneys, we call them. They're like large spires. And they, they love being there. They're at the very top. They love being up into the current where they get nutrients that come in. And they're only around these vent systems. And so um, we're still trying to identify what species it is. It may be a new species to us. Uh, as well as the shrimp that live there. They live there in very large numbers. And they they walk right along the, the top, the, on top of the chimneys and through the through the water coming out. And uh, we may there may be three species of those. We're not sure yet. Very exciting. So I guess there's an awful lot we still need to discover about these these habitats. I mean, there must be more questions than answers at the moment. Oh, yeah. I mean, every time we had a dive, whether it was shallow water um, or deep, we, we found something new. Um, the amount of diversity we saw at 300 meters uh, was really remarkable. And the coloration of the animals, they blended into their surroundings. Even at 300 meters where it's black, pitch black to us, they seem to be using camouflage for some reason, or they have still have it for some reason. They, ha- they haven't lost their ability to have camouflage. When you go deeper, uh, you lose that color. And when we were seeing wood at 3,000 meters, 4,000 meters, all the animals were white. They were nothing like we had seen anywhere else in the sediment or the vents or anywhere else. The thing is, with this with this vehicle that we had, we, we couldn't sample. So we couldn't bring them back to the lab and, and dissect them and play with them and look at the morphology. We just could take pictures and uh, or video. And that said, the high-definition video was very um, of high resolution. And so we, we were able to get in really close and in some cases, you know, count the little hairs on the back of the shrimp that helps us identify who they are. And so that's what we're in the process of doing now is identifying who all these species are. And um, Again, remarkable diversity, so it will, it will take some time. You uh, mentioned that this is the beginning. Uh, your expedition to, to Indonesia yes. this year was the beginning of a long-term project. Um, what's next for, for that project? Yeah, this was year one of, of five, actually, and we have planned another cruise to the east of where we were last year. It's called Helmira area. We think it has uh, chemosynthetic communities there. Um, it's not venting there. It's seeping. It's coming up through sediments, so it's cold uh, nutrients that are coming up. We normally in those areas see clams and shrimp and tube worms. We're looking forward to it. Um, it'll be another month, month and a half long cruise to there, and I know we're going to find some really incredible stuff. Tim Shank there from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution telling us about his exploration of the deep sea around Indonesia. And I think it's just crazy that these images are being filmed in the deep sea, miles beneath the waves, and they're being pinged instantly around the world with researchers tuning in and chatting away um, to help figure out what's down there. I mean, what a great use of all those things like Skype and, and iChat and things. I think it's fantastic. Truly 21st century stuff. Well, you can also hear a longer version of my chat with Tim, again, at the specials page of the Naked Scientist website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash specials. Lots for you to listen to this month. It's kind of, it's tapping into the whole sort of consumer control. It's it's almost like reality TV, but for scientists, you can, it's it's like the X factor. You can ring in and vote for who you want. It's like, I don't know, maybe one day they'll they'll show stuff like that on television. You can get viewers ringing in and going, oh, can you go and look over to the left? I want, I want the sub to go left and see what I can see over there. 
Well, we've just about reached the end of another episode of Naked Oceans and the end of this series. So we'll leave you with one more offering for the Critter of the Month Hall of Fame. We caught up with another marine expert and asked them, if you were a marine critter, which would you be and why? I'm Greg Rouse. I'm a professor here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And if I had to be a critter, I would choose Ozodax, which are bone-eating worms. These amazing animals uh, live in the deep sea, mainly. And what they're doing is as little baby larvae that are swimming around in the plankton, they're waiting for the occasional bones of a dead whale falling to the bottom. They then land on these bones, and of course most of them never have the chance to land on a bone because they die. But those that do land on the bones, and they grow up by co-opting bacteria to live in their tissues and working together with the bacteria, they dissolve the bone and eat the fats and collagen in the bone. What's amazing about them is that the the ones that initially settle are all females. So it's females who dissolve and eat the bone. And then once they've covered the bone, any new babies coming in are taken by the females and made into little dwarf males. So the females actually accumulate harems of dwarf males. So far we've found 17 species of these amazing animals and they were only discovered in 2002 and we think there are probably many more species of these all over the oceans of the world waiting for bones to fall to the bottom. The other thing we've been studying is when they might have evolved because whales have only been around for about 50 million years and some of the recent work we've done is, has shown that in fact they'll eat fish bones and other mammal bones and we're starting to think that they might now have been around in the Cretaceous back more than 65 million years ago when they could have been eating vast bone resources such as plesiosaurs and mosasaurs. So they might actually be, be a very ancient group of worms and their closest relatives are actually hydrothermal vent worms that are gigantic animals called Riftia. And, and, uh, but all of this group actually we've now discovered are not anything more than derived relatives of things that we're familiar with such as earthworms and other things called annelids. So the amazing worm Ozodax is really just a very, very bizarre relative of earthworms. That was Greg Rouse from Scripps Institution of Oceanography talking about Ocidax, the amazing bone-eating worms. And I actually find it quite entertaining that the nickname for those things is the bone-eating snot flower. Not, not the most attractive name and not necessarily the most attractive organism, but amazing, amazing creatures nonetheless. Well, you can catch up with all of our critters of the month and there's a whole year's worth of them now at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. That's it for Naked Oceans this month, and it's also the end of the current series. But fear not, we will be back with a one-hour special of The Naked Scientists, where Sarah and I will choose our favourite bits from the first series, and we might even give you a bit of a glimpse behind the scenes. So for now, it just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Alistair Gamble, Frederick Ming, Douglas Bartlett, Kevin Hardy, Tim Shank and Greg Rouse. And thanks once again to everybody who's made an appearance on this first series of Naked Oceans. We obviously couldn't do it without you. We'll be back in August with Naked Oceans Series 2. So until then, do keep in touch. Let us know if you have any marine topics you'd like us to delve into in the next series. Or maybe you've got an oceans question that you'd like us to tackle. We're on Twitter, at Naked Oceans. You can email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. And you can listen back through the whole first series of Naked Oceans so far and find loads of marine information and all sorts of stuff at our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. As always, thanks for listening and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.